0: If you have a Bible, you can open at 1 Timothy. We will look at chapter 3 this morning. The text is also printed uh, right there on the next page of the bulletin. And there are some Bibles available on the back table if you need one of those. (coughs) Uh, We're doing something a bit unusual for us. Normally, we're just going through a book of the Bible. um, And we've been going through Matthew's Gospel recently. But we're taking a break from that for a brief thematic series on church leadership. So during the month of February, as I mentioned during the announcements, uh, members are welcome to make officer nominations. So we are thinking together about what to look for in potential elders and deacons, officers of the church. So first, in our series a few weeks ago, we looked at the Christ-centeredness that should be at the heart of a leader in the church. Church officers uh, are not there to call attention to themselves or even to you know help people in generic ways. Uh, but specifically to know Jesus and make him known for life with God. So uh, then, last week, we looked briefly at how elders are to be able to teach the gospel to help people, uh, keep people connected to Jesus and to his grace. And this morning, we're going to talk about deacons, how they reflect the merciful heart of Jesus. So we're going to read the whole chapter here of 1 Timothy 3, which actually addresses the spiritual characteristics of both elders and deacons. Uh, We are not able to work our way through every single detail of what uh, Paul has to say about church leaders and officers here, but we can at least read it and get a cursory overview as we focus uh, really on just a few verses, the qualifications for deacons in particular this morning. So once again, if you have questions that are not covered during the sermon about this passage, uh, please feel free to bring them up during sermon discussion after worship. Join us for that. Otherwise, let's get into this. I'm going to pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we are glad to have your word in all of its richness. We pray that you teach us some of the wonders of your love as we consider your word together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he he desires a noble task. may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, (coughs) seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, who was a younger pastor, uh, someone Paul had taught and mentored and then partnered with in his uh, ministry, church planting in particular. Paul is uh, giving instructions to Timothy about church leadership as he said, so you know how someone ought to behave as a church leader in the church, right? Uh, it's, it's something that's vital to the spiritual health of a congregation. The, the leadership of a congregation is vital to the health of a congregation. So when Paul begins to talk here in verse 8 about deacons, uh, he says, likewise, referring to what he had just said about elders, so he's saying that these two offices are connected in some ways. There's some similarities here. Many of the requirements that he mentions specifically, apply to both. Since that's the case, I'm going to start in verse 1. Just look at that for a minute uh, with something that applies to all church leadership, something that's good for the church as it applies to church leadership. So he says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, and I think the same goes for uh, if anyone aspires to the office of deacon, he desires a noble task. So most people read this as... um, an encouragement or an an approval of ambition, right? So as if Paul were commending those who want to be officers in the church, Um, you know, they read it as if it said, it's a good aspiration. It's a good thing to want. It's a noble desire to want to be an elder or a deacon, a leader in the church. Uh, That's actually not what Paul says, right? What does Paul say? He says it's a noble task. Not that it's a noble desire, noble, good thing to want. He says, no, it's a noble task. Right? So Paul's not simply endorsing anyone's motives in, inspiring to op- in aspiring to office. <clears throat> I actually uh, consider this to be a warning of the gravity of the office. Uh, saying, if you want to be a leader in the church, <laughs> be careful, know what you're talking about. It's a noble task. Right? So John Stott says that. In his commentary on this passage, the responsibility of caring for God's church is calculated to daunt the best and most gifted Christians. Right? So all kinds of uh, people want to be leaders in the church. All kinds of bad people want to be leaders in the church. Paul's always addressing the problem of these bad people. He calls them false teachers, or Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. In fact, Paul goes on from here immediately to address (coughs) false teachings. And then later in chapter 6 to address false teachers, right, the dangers of their teachings, that's sort of the context of this letter. So he's, he's emphasizing the importance of having good leaders and making sure you don't have bad leaders, which is the job of good leaders, to make sure you don't have bad leaders. Um, so he's he's emphasizing that here. <clears throat> you know, we easily have bad ideas about what it means to be an officer in the church. We think of it as, uh, you know, it's an impressive position of prestige and power and honor. Like the world tends to think of greatness. You know? But Jesus teaches that true greatness, and we've talked about this a lot as we've gone through Matthew's gospel lately. Uh, true greatness, true nobility in the kingdom of heaven uh, is characterized by humility and self-sacrifice and service. So John Calvin says in his commentary on this, he says that the the government of the church is a matter of so great difficulty that it ought rather to strike terror into the minds of persons of sound judgment than to excite them to desire it. Um, So if you go around (coughs) lobbying to be considered a leader in the church, an elder or a deacon, it would probably indicate you don't know really what you're talking about, (laughs) what church leadership really is, um, or what it should be. It's not about finally being able to get your own way because you're in charge, right? Uh, it's about being called to give up everything except for Jesus and to serve him and to serve others in his name, even to become slave of all. That's the way Jesus talks about it. So if you want to be an officer in the church, you should pray about why you want that. And then listen to what Paul has to say about the, the spiritual requirements of those who would be servants in the church. And it's okay to come to the conclusion that that might not describe you. Uh, you are still welcome to participate and serve in the church, even if you're not an elder, even if you're not a deacon. Right? So, you know who wouldn't qualify as elder or deacon in the church? Um, according to Paul here, King David would not qualify to be an officer in the church. Uh, none of the patriarchs would qualify, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. They would not qualify to be elders or deacons in the church. The prophet Jonah would not qualify. Plenty of people from the Old Testament, big names. Big names they would not qualify to be officers in the church. Surely, eventually all these people were humbled and rejoiced to know God's love and to discover that God's plans included them in wonderful ways, even though they would not qualify to be officers in the church. So whoever you are, you can know God's love and you can be blessed to participate in God's kingdom, even if you're not going to be recognized as an officer in the church. You can still serve in the church, even if you're not recognized as an officer in the church. So what we have here is a list of these spiritual qualities, spiritual qualities that perhaps we should all aspire to, but that are required to define the lives of officers in the church. Uh, there may be uh, you know, worldly imitations, cheap knockoffs of many of these qualities. Uh, the, the virtues of successful people might masquerade as these qualities. But these are specific biblical qualities that arise from a real vital relationship with Jesus. That's what they are. So when Paul says in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, he's saying, you know, there's a lot of similarities between elders and deacons likewise, which you can see, you can read in the lists there. But probably the main difference, actually, uh, is that elders must be able to teach, says that in verse 2. Whereas that's not a requirement for the office of deacon, and that indicates what I think is the main distinction between the two offices. In some sense, the elder has the ministry of the word, the proclamation of the word, and the deacon has the ministry of maybe manifestation of the word, but service. Um, remember in the Bible, the, the Greek word for deacon, diakonos, means servant. It probably would be really helpful for us if we just called the office that. The deacons just called him servants, with a capital S if you like, right? Uh, But our Book of Church Order gives a good definition of the office of deacon. It says that the office is one of sympathy and service after the example of the Lord Jesus. It expresses also the communion of saints, especially in their helping one another in time of need. It is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church. The office of deacon is spiritual in nature. So it's the spirit-filled office of service, the spirit-filled office of mercy. Uh, Read everywhere through the Old Testament histories, the law, the wisdom literature, the prophets. Everywhere you will find God's people being called to extend mercy, to extend love. To the poor, and the widow, and the orphan, and the alien, stranger, refugee, sojourner type person, right? Consider our Old Testament reading that uh, servant Nathan read from Exodus 22 and 23. Uh, Showing mercy to the lowest and to the least is high on God's list of priorities. And it is a major concern throughout the Old Testament. It picks right up in the New Testament. Jesus is always talking about showing mercy to the lowest and the least. He spent time with societal outcasts. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He helped widows and orphans and strangers, sojourners. He taught his disciples, blessed are the poor. And he told everyone that when they served the destitute and the lonely and the lowest and the least, they're serving him but it was an expression of their relationship with him to do that. So he said that his kingdom of grace belongs to the lowest and the least. The early church was so transformed by God's free grace that they shared all their possessions with those who had need, so it was said that there wasn't a needy person among them. The apostles made it a priority to remember the poor, and they commanded all Christians not to show favoritism based on things like wealth or social status. So... Mercy, charity, compassion, these things are clearly very important to God. When God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, his whole life was characterized by two things, teaching and serving. Teaching and serving. In Presbyterian churches like ours, there's a tendency to emphasize the teaching part. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the word, the teacher, the chief elder, the presbyter, where we get our name, right? But Jesus is also the servant He's the chief deacon. And if we're going to reflect all of who Jesus is and all of what he has done for us, then we need to have a heart for both teaching and service for both word ministry and mercy ministry in our church. So Tim Keller wrote this. What does the Bible say about a family or church which says, Our job is just to preach the gospel, but does not involve itself in social concern. The ministry of mercy is essential to Christian love and lifestyle. Even though the ministry of mercy aims at physical needs, it is a spiritual ministry to physical needs. It's a spiritual office. So mercy is essential to Christian love, so much so that Jesus has given to his church not just one office of leadership, but two. He's ordained that there be elders who rule and teach his word, and he's ordained that there be deacons who are ministers of mercy. And it's not that, you know, word ministry is spiritual. And mercy ministry is you know, mundane, earthly. Both are spiritual. Both arise from a spirit-filled life with God. Both reflect who Jesus is in his fullness. <clears throat> so, work through these phrases here, starting in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So, being dignified means uh, you know, just being honorable, as a representative of Jesus. Representing Jesus, that's where the honor is. That's where the dignity is. Jesus himself is dignified. Jesus himself is honorable, even though he was frequently dishonored and treated uh, without dignity, not treated with dignity. The, The dignity of Jesus is seen in how he treats the lowest and the least with honor. And that is... Exactly, why he was treated with dishonor himself, without dignity. Why he was scorned and mocked in the world by those who thought to associate with such people, the lowest and the least, the really bad people, should be beneath his dignity. <clears throat> but that's precisely where his dignity is, and it's a privilege to demonstrate the dignity of Jesus, even if it means sharing in the scorn and the mocking. Double tongued. The deacon should not be double tongued. It means insincere. It's like speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Uh, Deacons spend a lot of time with the down and outs, with people that the world has a hard time loving. And uh, they're to share the very love of Christ with them and inspire the rest of us to join in doing so. But what happens when you encounter people who are hard to love? What happens when sinners encounter people who are hard to love? Uh, There's often the temptation to appear to be nice to people when you're dealing with them to their faces, but then to turn around and speak poorly of them to others. So being double-tongued betrays a lovelessness. It isn't a genuine love that would be double-tongued. You don't sincerely care for those who are hard to love. You're just acting like you do for some reason. We do that all the time because we want people to think well of us. In case you didn't know, that's not a good thing. We need to be forgiven and turn away from that motive, to just do things for the sake of appearances so that people feel well, feel good about us or think well of us. Deacons especially cannot serve the lowest and the least so that people will think well of them. Uh, That in no way demonstrates the selfless love and service of Jesus. That's just a big old demonstration of hypocrisy, which the low and the little uh, can sniff out from a mile away. So deacons need to be the kind of people who are well persuaded of the fact that in God's sight, they're the ones who are difficult to love. I'm the one who is difficult to love. I'm the one who has nothing to offer to God. I'm the one who doesn't in any way merit God's favor or even his attention, and yet, God doesn't lie. He is not double-tongued, and he has spoken words of faithful love to us, even to me. Right? So, God gave up his own son to death on a cross to love the unlovable, to have mercy on miserable sinners. Deacons know that means them. Deacons know they have been the undeserving recipients of that love. And their response, then, is a changed heart toward others who are also unlovable. Kind and sincere words of encouragement to those that the world has abandoned as a lost cause. It's like in our Old Testament reading when Yahweh told his people to care for the widows and the orphans and the refugees. He repeated the point, It's sort of like, uh, like bookends to that passage. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You should be able to relate to the down and outs. This is the point that he repeats. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You should be able to relate. Deacons can see themselves in the lowest and the least, and they're thankful to be able to celebrate God's gracious love and to participate in it with sincerity. Uh, Verse 8, again. Deacons must not be addicted to much wine. So it's like with the elders. uh, Deacons need to be free from addictions. In fact, I would say uh, this applies to more than just an abuse of alcohol. Officers in the church need to be free from all addictions. They're set before the church as trophies of God's grace. Testimony to God's nature. As actually the one true God. So we often give ourselves to these false gods like wine. That's what's being brought up here. It's a good representative addiction. We give ourselves to false gods like wine to get us through life. To bring us some happiness, to dull the pain that we can't deal with, or to grant some sense of fulfillment or worth or whatever, right? And once we've given ourselves to such things, we're ensnared and we need more. And we need more to distract us from the reality of our plight. I have friends who assume that after a hard day, uh, what we really need is a good beer to be able to relax and unwind. Look, the scriptures clearly state alcohol is actually a good thing, including its effect of making the heart glad. That is endorsed by the Bible. It is a gift from God, for sure. But someone who knows Jesus knows that only, uh, only in him are found true joy, True peace, true life, true rest, and they cannot be found anywhere else. Where false gods make false promises that bring only bondage and futility, the Lord Jesus fulfills his promises and he fulfills our joy by his sacrificial love and by his guarantee of a share in his resurrection and glory. So when God's glorious love in Christ captures your heart, it breaks your chains. It breaks the chains, the grip of false gods on your life, and you will turn away from them, maybe all at once, maybe. Maybe bit by bit in a long, drawn-out death match with them. But because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for us, there is hope for anyone to be set free from any slavery, any addiction. And more than most... Deacons are connected to broken people who are trapped in addiction. And so they need to know what it means when the son of God sets you free. Deacons have good opportunities to testify to that reality, to our merciful deliverer. Uh, Deacons also in uh, verse eight must not be greedy for dishonest gain. So someone who's greedy for dishonest gain cannot be trusted, uh, cannot be trusted to deal well with the charitable gifts of God's people. Really, we all need to be uh, motivated more and more by the privilege of participating in the life of Jesus, in his generosity, and to believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive, as Jesus said. Deacons especially represent the generosity of Jesus, publicly. Generosity is the opposite of greed, right? They must not be greedy. What does that mean? generous. So a pastor friend of mine once said that deacons are called to spend money generously and wisely on behalf of the needy. They're supposed to be liberal in the use of their resources to bless others and to develop the grace of liberality in members of a church. So a lot of times we think deacons should simply be fiscal conservatives, watching the spending, making sure we stick to the budget. Who is the guy who did that among Jesus' disciples? It was Judas, the betrayer, who was stealing money from the purse, who condemned the lavishing of expensive ointment on Jesus when it was used to honor and prepare Jesus for burial, remember? So deacons need to see how it is responsible, it is faithful, it's part of their responsive faithfulness to Jesus to be generous and mobilize the church to be generous. How could they develop the grace of liberality in others when they're restricted by greed themselves or when you know, things like fear and doubt drive them to be stingy? Deacons can get us all focused on loving others and meeting the needs of others, knowing full well uh, that it's going to cost us all to do that. It costs to do that, just like it cost Jesus to love us. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So the deacons know that they, they lack nothing because they have God. So we have no need for greed if we have God. <clears throat> the deacon is satisfied to participate in the self-sacrificial generosity of Jesus. And he's blessed to invite others to join him in that divine life. Verse 9, deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. It's a mystery of faith. What does that mean? Uh, A lot of Christians are fascinated with the concept of just mystery in general, almost like in a mystical sense, like we're supposed to be engaging in some... Mystical observances, even though we don't really know what's happening, we just do the thing, it doesn't make any sense, or whatever. Um for Paul, mystery is is simply a way of saying something that would remain unknown unless God made it known. With all our ingenuity, with all our philosophical insight, we would never fathom the mystery of our salvation, but God has revealed it to us. He's made it known. That's the way he uses the language of mystery. It's not super mysterious. You can know it. You can know the mystery of faith. Deacons have to know it. And they have to believe it for dear life. And the content of that mystery, I think, is made clear just in a few verses. In the next passage in uh, <clears throat> chapter 3, says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in glory uh, in the world, taken up in glory. So it's, it's sort of the basic gospel, right? The fundamentals that Paul is calling the mystery of the faith or the mystery of godliness because it's something that people didn't come up with on their own. We wouldn't have suspected any of this, this characterized God's life. This is not, not a man-made religion. This is revealed by God in his word. In fact, we can say that Jesus himself is the mystery of faith. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. Jesus is the one who has been revealed for our life with God. The good news about Christianity is clear for anyone who would listen. Jesus has fully opened up the way to God by his blood on the cross. Jesus has restored the human relationship with God in himself, and he has shared that relationship with God with us, with all who belong to him through faith. So not a mystery religion we're not talking about any special level you can reach by trying harder than others or knowing the secrets or whatever jesus has granted us all instant access to the holy of holies to the very intimate presence of god himself to who he calls our father in heaven his father and ours all is a free gift of his grace so if you get jesus you get all of this the deacon doesn't have to be some super spiritual guru He has to know the mystery of faith and godliness. He has to know Jesus. The deacon has to know Jesus. He has to know the incarnate Son of God as revealed in the gospel. He has to be someone who is persuaded of his own sin, who knows his own deep need for the grace of God, and who is forgiven and cleansed and transformed by that grace as it is clearly revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has to have a clear conscience. But that is not attained uh, by his own works. He knows he can't wipe his own slate clean or do enough good deeds to outweigh all the bad things that he's done. A clear conscience in Christianity truly only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So the the deacon, by his humble faith, by his repentance and renewed obedience that's fueled by God's grace, that's a model for Christians and for non-Christians alike, to show them how, how they can be made right with God. So even though deacons aren't called to a teaching ministry like the elders, they are called to hold fast to the doctrines of the gospel like the elders here, this, this mystery of faith, mystery of godliness. So that's why we require all church officers to subscribe to the theological standards of our church. Uh, these, these are part of the vows for ordination. Uh, and they come in the question form here. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? And do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? It's important for not just elders as teachers, but for deacons who have to know Jesus. So, uh, verse 10, let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So deacons are to be tested, and I think that also probably means just like the elders are, just like the elders are tested first, deacons are to be tested with regard to the ministry specific to the office to which they're called, right? So deacons don't Start their ministry day one uh, on their ordination. It's more like their ordination is just the public recognition that they're already doing this stuff. They're already ministers of mercy, they're already called and equipped by God, they've been tested. Uh, Paul writes later in First Timothy he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's the idea of ordination. Don't do that too quickly. Give some time. Give some time. The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. You want to give that some time. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are, that are not cannot remain hidden. So good works of a diaconal nature must be recognizably demonstrated before ordination. That's why... Uh, it's very helpful to have, as part of our nomination process, participation by everybody in the congregation. The, the rule that, you know, the nominations come from you. And that that rule is, for us, at least three unrelated members of the church are recognizing this in the life of someone who might be called to, to be a deacon. I've known of a man in another church who had a large family, and they were the only ones who nominated him for that office. No one else in the church recognized him as being a potential officer. And he excused that by saying, well, you know, often the best leaders are the ones who do all their work behind the scenes, who don't get any recognition for their quiet service. Paul says good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not conspicuous can't remain hidden. So if you should be an officer in the church, whether that means elder or deacon, it's going to be clear and recognizable to people already, because you'll already be serving. The deacon will be motivated by the spirit of Christ to serve, to have a ministry of mercy, whether or not he's recognized. So the deacon will serve and help others to serve, develop that grace of liberality and service. It says in verse 13, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So that doesn't mean good deacons earn merit points with God. As opposed to, you know, all those regular pew warmers out there, right? Uh, regular folks in church. Now, any true honor they receive is by the grace of God. And the confidence that Paul is talking about, the boldness that they gain is growth in faith. It's confidence in faith. So the deacon has to know the mercy of Jesus in order to know and and help others know the mercy of Jesus. And the benefit of that is knowing the mercy of Jesus and believing it. Deepening in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Growing in confidence and believing that Jesus actually does love sinners. As he sees the love of Christ at work in his own life and in his ministry. That sounds good. May we all know the mercy of Christ and the joyful privilege of participating in his merciful love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing your love to us in your servant, Jesus. Thank you that his life of service is truly glorious and substantial and divine. Thank you for the opportunity to testify to your mercy by becoming a people of mercy. Help us to see ourselves in the lowest and the least, because you have loved the lowest and the least. You've even become the lowest and the least yourself. Help us to love and serve others as part of our relationship with you in the name of Jesus and with his own joy. We pray in his name. Amen.